Hello. I am a robot. You are listening to an echo of glory. A 200% podcast. Hello everybody, and welcome to the 20th and final episode of An Echo of Glory, a 200% podcast. My name is Ian King, and over the course of this series I've been telling you the history of football in England and Wales, tracing the story of the game from the mob game of the Middle Ages through to the modern day. By 2010, elite level football had long since ceased to be the working man's game. The billionaires had arrived, and they were followed by the vulture capitalists. Football was changing, but then it came to a sudden and jarring stop. We don't yet know what professional football will look like when it returns. All we know for sure is that it will, in some form or other. This is the story of football in England and Wales, from 2010 to the present day. City Football Group was founded in the summer of 2008, completing the takeover of Manchester City before the end of September that year. It was formed by the Abu Dhabi United Group, a United Arab Emirates-based private equity company owned by Sheikh Mansour bin Zayed al-Nayan. Manchester City were in the money, though there was disquiet over various issues relating to human rights abuses in the UAE. Mansell didn't stop with City either. After founding the MLS side New York City FC and purchasing the A-League franchise Melbourne Heart, who he renamed shortly afterwards as Melbourne City. Money poured into Manchester City, spent on both players and infrastructure. Mansell wanted them to be amongst that gilded few of elite European clubs. On the pitch, though, there wasn't much immediate success. Manchester City had finished the 2007-08 season in 9th place in the Premier League. They finished the Abu Dhabi Group's first season in charge, a place lower in the table, though they did climb to 5th place by the end of the 2009-10 season. But success did follow, and the 2010-11 season turned out to be the really crucial one in Manchester City's clamber towards the ascent. They finished in third place in the Premier League, qualifying for the Champions League for the first time, and won the FA Cup with a 1-0 win against Stoke City in the final. 
This FA Cup win was their first major trophy since the 1976 League Cup, while they haven't missed out on a Champions League place since their 2011 breakthrough. And at the end of the following season, they became the champions of England for the first time since 1968. City were tussling with Manchester United at the top of the table and needed to equal United's result from their home match against Queen's Park Rangers on the last day of the season. United won by a goal to nil at Sunderland, meaning that City needed to win as well. And this being Manchester City, they made enormously hard work of it, falling 2-1 behind, despite the first half sending off of QPR's Joey Barton. Two minutes into stoppage time at the end of the match, though, Edin Dzeko scored a goal to pull them back level, and then, with a further two minutes played... QPR fans are jumping up and down, maybe there's more news... More favourable news for them. It's finished at Sunderland. Manchester United have done all they can. That Rooney goal was enough for the three points. Manchester City are still alive here. Balotelli. Aguero! Since then, Manchester City have won the Premier League a further three times, the FA Cup once and the League Cup five times. For now though, success in European competition has continued to elude them. The UEFA financial fair play regulations were established to prevent professional football clubs spending more than they earn in the pursuit of success and in doing so getting into financial trouble which might threaten their long-term survival. They were agreed to in principle in September 2009 by UEFA's financial control panel and were introduced from the 2011-12 season. The regulations provide for sanctions to be taken against clubs who exceed spending over several seasons within a set budgetary framework. The severest penalty for breaking these regulations is disqualification from European competitions. Other penalties include fines, the withholding of prize money and transfer bans. These regulations haven't come without substantial criticism though. It has been argued that FFP was little more than an attempt to entrench existing hierarchies through preventing investment in clubs that don't already enjoy the huge commercial benefits that come with being a global brand. Indeed, it might be argued that FFP was always going to be a waste of time from the viewpoint of competition without the huge redistribution of wealth in both European and domestic club football. Other issues, such as encouraging under-the-counter sponsorship deals and other such creative accountancy, have also been raised. Manchester City found themselves in hot water almost immediately over naming rights to the Etihad Stadium. The deal was reported to be worth £400 million over 10 years, almost double the previous all-time record of $300 million American dollars for the world-famous Madison Square Garden in New York 
and it was several times the £90 million 15-year sponsorship deal that Arsenal had agreed with the Middle Eastern airline Emirates in 2006, just five years earlier. In March 2012, the Council of Europe produced a report which described the deal as an improper transaction, recommending that UEFA should prohibit clubs from sponsoring themselves or using associated bodies to do so. Since then, dozens of clubs have been investigated or charged by UEFA with breaching these regulations, and City's name has come up more than once. On the 14th of February 2020, Manchester City were banned from all UEFA club competitions for the 2021 and 21-22 seasons, and fined €30 million by the UEFA club financial control body due to breaches of the UEFA financial fair play regulations. However, the decision is now pending appeal by Manchester City to the Court for Arbitration in Sport. Towards the end of last year, the German news magazine Der Spiegel released reams of documents that seemed to indicate that not only was Manchester City's overspending egregious and systematic, but that the club also intended to seek to blow away FFP rules in court altogether, should they be able to get that far. When questioned about his role in it all, the Manchester City manager Pep Guardiola, whose very arrival at the Etihad Stadium was in itself a demonstration of the leap towards Europe's elite that the club had made, was extremely put out. Yeah, there's one big question the club haven't answered, which related, which unfortunately is the environment you are celebrating, but Roberto Mancini was discovered to have had separate payments from Abu Dhabi while okay, he was guys, manager. We're not have you go... ever had separate payments we're not from Abu go into Dhabi that while City manager? Do you, know, do you know the question as you're asking to me? Do you know the question asking me if I receive money for another situation right now today? Do you honestly, do you think I deserve to make this kind of question that happened, Roberto? I don't know. Did they want to travel about the I've received money for another situations? Okay, we'll run an embargo now, please, for one day. Across the city of Manchester from the Etihad Stadium, meanwhile, a dynasty was coming to an end. Sir Alex Ferguson had to retire at some point and eventually did so in 2013, having made his club the champions of England for a record 20th time. Supporters have protested against the Glazer family, the owners of the club, over about three or four years earlier, but Ferguson had managed to keep United competitive despite a lack of investment in the club by the owners, Sometimes, it rather felt, through a sheer force of will. That assessment of Manchester United's post-Ferguson era felt a little glib at the time, but it has turned out to be more accurate than most would have believed. Ferguson's replacement was the Everton manager David Moyes, but Moyes only lasted until April 2014 before getting sacked. United finished that season in 7th place in the Premier League, their lowest league finish since 1990, and things haven't improved enormously since either. Louis van Gaal was Moyes' replacement. Van Gaal clung on to his job at the end of his first season by edging United into fourth place in the Premier League and therefore into the following season's Champions League. But with this now being the baseline for what constitutes success at Manchester United, he was unable to hold on to his job at the end of the 2015-16 season, when United dropped a place in the table to fifth and missed out. 
The nature of his sacking, though, not long after winning the FA Cup, didn't paint the club in a particularly positive light either. Van Gaal's replacement was Jose Mourinho. Given supporters' desire for expansive attacking football, Mourinho's appointment had an element of a deal with the devil about it. He wouldn't play the most exciting football, it was said, but he would return United to their place near the top of the Premier League table. Mourinho did deliver trophies. By the end of the 2016-17 season, United had won both the League Cup and the Europa League, meaning that, despite having finished the season in fifth place in the Premier League again, United had a route into the following year's Champions League. And the following season, he took them to their highest league position and points total since Ferguson's departure, when they finished as runners-up to Manchester City again. The team's form tailed off again, however, throughout the first half of the 2018-19 season, and Mourinho was sacked a week before Christmas. His replacement was Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, an appointment apparently born of sentimentality rather than acumen, though Solskjaer did manage to steady the listing ship throughout the remainder of the season, and at the time of recording this, he may even get Manchester United back into the Champions League again this time around. Still though, Manchester United have no director of football and a scattergun policy on transfers, whilst Old Trafford itself has been one of the victims of the Glazers' underinvestment in the club. Manchester United do remain masters of the commercial partnership, and as long as dividends keep on rolling into the owners, there seems little that supporters can do to force them out. Ecstatic, absolutely thrilled about time. Why is that? Because, well, I mean, let's face it, it's been coming, it's been coming. I mean, the results, the buys, the way they've been playing, I mean, it's just been awful, awful. This is Manchester United, look. We're not used to that. We're not used to it. Just, you're right, and I've just had a call from a City fan, friend of mine, and he says, don't forget, Big Sam's available. He'll sort your defence out. <laughs> I don't know whether to laugh or cry. What about longer term, then? Who, who do you see as... Uh, it's hard to say. Who's available? People talk about Zidane. Would he want to come from sunny Spain to this nonsense? Look, Manchester folks. Look at it. Grey sky, raining. Would he want to come here? After winning Champions League three years in succession, I don't think so. By the middle of the decade, the Premier League had effectively split into two separate divisions, with a top six of Manchester City, Manchester United, Chelsea, Arsenal, Spurs and Liverpool streets ahead of everybody else in terms of both their financial clout and their global reach all of which made what happened at the end of the 2015-16 season all the more surprising. Indeed, it might just be the biggest surprise in the history of football in England. It took a run of seven wins and a draw from their last nine matches to keep Leicester City in the Premier League at the end of the 2014-15 season, and they started the following season amongst the favourites to get relegated with the odds against them lifting the title at an astronomical 5,000 to 1. Three of their players were sacked for filming what was described as a racist orgy on a summer trip to Thailand. Manager Nigel Pearson's son was amongst them. Pearson followed. Claudio Ranieri, a good man, but largely by that time considered a failure, 
replaced him. It didn't seem unreasonable to suggest that they might find the coming season a struggle. They had a decent start though. Three wins and three draws from their first six matches. On the 26th of September though, Leicester lost 5-2 at home to Arsenal, a result which felt like a balloon popping. Leicester lost just two further Premier League matches that season. The first rumblings that they could push for a Champions League place came in the weeks before Christmas, when they held Manchester United to a draw and beat Chelsea. Christmas was seen as a test, and relatively speaking, they didn't pass, with just two points from three matches, although one of those was at home against Manchester City. Their defeat came exactly three months to the day after their last, on Boxing Day at Liverpool. But then it started again. A win at Spurs in the middle of January preceded the start of a run of fixtures that would come to define their season. Three games in 12 days against Liverpool, Manchester City and Arsenal. In the first, they airily brushed aside Liverpool, the team who dissected them on Boxing Day, by two goals to nil. And the second was an away match against Manchester City. Training ground routine, clearly. Who's going to take it? It's Mares in the end. It goes a long way and it's in from Hoot. And Leicester City grab the lead early from the big defender, Robert Hoot. Well, what about that? The amazing Leicester City story goes on. Balance was good and strength as well there. Mares has made something of that. It's Mares! 2-0 to Leicester City! Astonishing developments here! They've done exactly what they did at the start of the first half and scored within a couple of minutes at the start of the second. Comes the corner kick and Huth is there again and it's three! Robert Huth, Leicester City are in dreamland here. Where next in this astonishing story? The scoreline here that nobody really can believe, except the Leicester fans, certainly not him. Manchester City nil, Leicester City three. On Valentine's Day, they lost to Arsenal again. But then the machine just wound itself up and started winning again. Five successive wins from the start of March tied things up and the matter was decided at Stamford Bridge on a balmy Monday night in May when Spurs, who were the last team that could catch Leicester and desperately needed a win, threw away a two-goal lead against Chelsea to draw two all. Leicester City were the champions of England. The summer of 2016 turned out to be the culmination of a period during which the England national team hit a low not seen since the early 1950s. Euro 2012 had seen another penalty shootout defeat, this time against Italy in the quarter-finals after a drab goalless draw. That they got this far was achievement in itself. Fabio Capello resigned on the 8th of February 2012 following the FA's removal of the captaincy from John Terry. Roy Hodgson took charge of the team and got them through the Euros, but he couldn't survive his 2014 World Cup team's performance in Brazil. 
It was admittedly a difficult group, with both Uruguay and Italy. But England lost both of these games and were already out by the time they played out a grimy goalless draw against Costa Rica to finish bottom of their group. Hodgson held on to his job, but things were little better for them at Euro 2016, when having scrambled their way unimpressively through the group stages, England crashed out in the quarter-finals against Iceland. The FA's choice to replace Hodgson felt like the waving of a white flag, but Sam Allardyce lasted just two months and five days in the England job. In September 2016, Daily Telegraph reporters posing as businessmen filmed Allardyce allegedly offering to give advice on how to get around FA rules on player third-party ownership and negotiating a £400,000 deal subject to FA approval. He resigned after just one game in the job. His replacement was a shot in the dark. Gareth Southgate's record as a manager didn't leave much scope for optimism. He'd lasted three years at Middlesbrough without any particular distinction and his time in charge of the England under-21s only resulted in the team finishing bottom of their group at the 2015 European Under-21 Championships. But Southgate has used luck to his advantage and has cultivated a reputation as a solid, if unthrilling, tactician blessed with a generation of outstanding young players coming through at the same time. Still though, This team was young, so expectations for the 2018 World Cup finals in Russia were low. England won their first two group matches against Tunisia and Panama, but, already qualified, lost their final group match against Belgium. In the second round, Colombia, and a fairly bad-tempered game which ended in a one-all draw and a penalty shootout. By this stage, the penalty shootout had become a cause of mass neurosis in England. The national team hadn't won one in more than two decades. But on this occasion, though, things were different. This time, they won. Three each after four each. Back up. Pickford stops it! Eric Dyer places the ball on the spot. And England win on penalties! History in itself for this new team, new territory. The last eight of the World Cup and who knows where beyond there. Southgate's team breezed through the quarterfinals with a comfortable 2-0 win against a Sweden team that didn't really turn up, setting up a first semi-final in 22 years against Croatia. On this occasion though, England were outplayed eventually. They took a six-minute lead through Kieran Trippier and held it for a little over an hour before Ivan Perisic equalised for Croatia. The match was forced into extra time and it wasn't until 119 minutes had been played before Mario Mandzukic scored the winning goal for Croatia. Defeat at the semi-finals but unrecognisable from all period England performances in the finals of major tournaments in at least a decade and a half. The following year, they reached the semi-finals of the Nations League, before reverting to type somewhat and losing after a penalty shootout following a goalless draw against Switzerland. Gareth Southgate remains the England manager to this day. Wales, meanwhile, 
started their Euro 2012 campaign with three defeats against Montenegro, Bulgaria and Switzerland, and two defeats against England sailed their fate. For the 2014 World Cup, they were seeded in a horribly tight group, alongside Belgium, Croatia and Serbia, as well as Scotland and Macedonia. They finished in second from bottom place. Six weeks after this, though, anything that could have ever happened on a football pitch was put into sharp perspective. Gary Speed, who had been appointed into the manager's job just over a year earlier, was found dead at home. He was 42 years old. It was an announcement that sent a horrible shudder across the whole of the continent. Speed was well-liked and a thoughtful coach, who'd made a little progress with a team that had been in the doldrums for much of the previous decade and a half. Tributes were fulsome and heartfelt. If Gary Speed leaves one legacy, it's that his death marked the beginning of a whole new chapter in the way that mental health issues in football are talked about. Under his replacement, Chris Coleman, Wales couldn't get to the 2014 World Cup finals, but with the team now sprinkled with world-class talent, they did finally end an unwanted streak two years later, qualifying for a newly expanded Euro 2016 with some degree of style, finishing second in their group behind Belgium, winning six and drawing three of their ten qualification matches. Once in France, they kicked off with a critical 2-1 win against Slovakia, before being brought back to earth by a 2-1 defeat against England, which was made all the more frustrating for the fact that they'd taken the lead in this match. Their final group game against Russia, however, saw them win 3-0 and get through to the second round, where a Gareth McCauley own goal gave them a 1-0 win against Northern Ireland. So to the quarter-finals and Belgium, the team who'd finished a point above them in their qualifying group and who were one of the favourites to win the tournament outright. It was, in short, possibly the finest ever performance by a Wales team. Good run from Aaron Ramsey, well found. Dinked in towards Robson, Carnu, Taylor's available, what a turn, what a goal! With 10 minutes of the second half played and the scores tied at 1-1, Hal Robson Carnu suddenly turned into Pele and scored one of the great goals in the history of Welsh football. With four minutes left, Sam Vokes added a third and Wales were in the semi-finals of the European Championships. Beating Portugal in the semi-finals, however, turned out to be a step too far for them. Two goals in four minutes early in the second half put the match beyond them. 
but they could exit with their heads held high. They failed to qualify for the 2018 World Cup Finals, missing out on a playoff place when they were beaten 1-0 at home by Ireland in their final group match, when a draw would have edged them through. Coleman resigned, but under Ryan Giggs, his replacement, Wales have qualified for Euro 2020, finishing second in their qualifying group behind World Cup finalist Croatia, with Slovakia and Hungary nipping at their heels. The sudden upswing in the fortunes of the Wales and England men's teams was matched by the England women's team. The decision to invest in the women's team started to pay great dividends for the FA as the decade wore on. Having reached the quarter-finals of the 2011 World Cup, they made the semi-finals in 2015 and 2019 and reached the semi-finals of the European Championships in 2009 and 2017. This success coincided with a restructuring of the women's club game in England. In 2011, the Women's Super League replaced the FA Women's Premier League and as the decade wore on, clubs such as Manchester City, Liverpool, Chelsea and Arsenal started to invest more heavily in their women's teams as well. In 2017, the league was rebranded as the FA Women's Super League, becoming fully professional for the first time, complete with a new league logo and 11 teams for the following season. Clubs had to reapply to earn their place in the league, requiring them to offer their players a minimum 16-hour-a-week contract and with forming a youth academy also being compulsory for the new licence. This, however, could be problematic. One of the founder members of the WSL and one of the most famous names in women's football in the UK, Doncaster Rovers Bells, were demoted when, in April 2013, the Football Association announced that, as part of an overhaul and expansion of the Women's Super League, Manchester City would replace the Bells in the top tier from 2014 on. There were other problems within the women's game as well. Another long-established club, Notts County, had to fold after the owner pulled the plug. Others were demoted in a culture that was openly commercially minded and within not too long, the WSL had the same gap in resources between its biggest clubs and the rest as the men's game, whilst the England manager Mark Sampson was sacked by the FA in September 2017 after evidence of inappropriate and unacceptable behaviour was uncovered during his previous time at Bristol Academy. Still though, the women's game continues to grow in popularity both nationally and internationally. The Women's Super League now has a contract with BT Sport, which sees weekly live matches being shown on the television. Whilst the entirety of the last Women's World Cup was shown live on the BBC and iPlayer. Allying women's teams to Premier League clubs, however, does leave them vulnerable, should the current situation, as of May 2020, have as terrible an effect on the finances of the whole game as is anticipated. Considering the resources at their disposal, some would argue that England might even have been shortchanged by not having made the final of a World Cup or European Championship. There can be no question, though, that the FA's investment and restructuring has pushed the women's game in this country into the national spotlight in a way that would have felt near impossible just 20 years earlier. Duggan with the corner and arriving brilliantly with the finish. England. 
England get a third goal. It's Alex Greenwood. What a corner that was. Gondon beaten for a third time. England progress into the quarterfinals after a three-goal victory. On the whole, the gap between the richest and the rest grew rapidly over the course of this decade, and it's easy to pin the blame for this on the Premier League. But the Football League, which rebranded itself as the weirdly fascistic-sounding EFL in 2016, also stood accused of poor governance frequently throughout this time. Perhaps the league's most egregious mistake was permitting Premier League Academy sides to rejoin the Football League trophy. The last remaining vestige of the years when English clubs were banned from European competition, this tournament had taken on a degree of sometimes grudging affection from supporters, but in 2016, the league rebranded it as the Checker Trade Trophy and invited Premier League development teams to enter. This decision, taken with no fan consultation whatsoever, was widely considered a slap in the face to supporters and a boycott exists to this day amongst many, with several clubs having recorded record low attendances in it. The Football League still has, to use the marketing language of the age, a strong product. The Football League Championship has the six highest attendances of any league in Europe and is now considered a division in which any team can still be any other. The desperation of clubs to get into the Premier League has a certain dark appeal to outside observers too, but this madness can also be seen in club accounts, with many spending way more than they can afford on player wages in an arms race for Premier League money. This, however, doesn't mean that inequality doesn't exist, even within this division. The biggest clubs have wage bills multiple times those of the smallest, whilst Premier League parachute money paid to relegated clubs to cushion the blow of a sudden drop in television money has only distorted matters further. It is, perhaps, a reflection on the business acumen of championship clubs that, even with parachute payments and a vast disparity in wage budgets between clubs, results there can still be as unpredictable as they are. And in recent years, financial fair play has hit here too, with the division finding itself in the bizarre position of having clubs contorting their books so that they can continue to spend, spend, spend. Some, such as Sheffield Wednesday and Derby County, have sold their homes to their owners in order to satisfy FFP, and a lot of fans seem happier to congratulate themselves on how clever they've been, rather than wondering whether separating a football club from the ownership of its home could carry quite a considerable risk in the fullness of time. On its day, though, the Championship retains the capacity to take one's breath away, even if it does occasionally look like a division at war with itself these days. Knockout takes, Almunia saves, knockout follows in, Almunia saves again! Absolutely astonishing. Now here come Watford. Forestieri. Here's Hogg. Dini! Do not scratch your eyes. You are really seeing the most extraordinary finish here. It almost mirrors the final day. 
very last kick of this playoff semi-final. Troy Deeney wins it for Watford and sends them to Wembley. All the heartache, all the heartbreak of that final day. It's all come spilling out. Gianfranco Zola slips over as he celebrates. The sheer euphoria pouring out from everyone, managers, players, supporters, as they came on for some slightly preliminary celebrations. The pitch being cleared again now by these stewards, but how about that? How about the most appalling example of football's poisonous relationship with Wild West capitalism, though, came right at the end of the decade, when Berry Football Club were expelled from the EFL. The club had changed hands from Stuart Day, a property developer who had seen his business crumble away to nothing, to one Steve Dale, a man who admitted that he knew nothing about football and didn't even know that Berry had a football club until he bought it at the end of the previous year. Berry were relegated from League One at the end of the 2018-19 season, but this was an irrelevance in comparison with what was going on behind the scenes at the club. Mortgage to the hilt, the money had run out, and Dale certainly wasn't putting in any of his own. By the summer, it was clear that this was a full-blown crisis, but the EFL's paucity of response at the end of the previous season had significant effects on the start of the following one. Berry were unable to start a single match at the start of the season, postponed and postponed because the EFL was not persuaded that the club could continue. At the start of September 2019, Berry Football Club were expelled from the Football League, the first to have that done to them since Leeds City, almost exactly a hundred years earlier. A Phoenix club, Berry AFC, has already been founded, although the body of the original club does remain twitching for now. What will happen to Berry's Gig Lane home is at present anybody's guess. As things stand, it's most likely that it will end up being demolished and sold off to pay the club's debts. The end of Berry Football Club feels like a bereavement for some fans. After 134 years in the Football League, it's all over. Tied up with it, decades of memories, victories, defeats, even marriage proposals. It's just everything you do, you know. I got engaged over there to my fiance. It's just, it is. I just, yeah, I've just lost words now. Just absolutely devastated. Football is corrupt, and that's it. It's not. It's not family. It's business. It's just money. That's all they want. The venues that we have in Bury, like pubs and chippies and whatnot, they're making money. The community of Bury is making money just by us playing here every second Saturday. So that in itself is going to suffer by us being kicked out of the league. The day had begun hopefully. Hundreds of volunteers preparing the stadium for what they thought would be Berry's first home game of the season on Saturday. Owner Stephen Dale had bought the club for £1 and he'd been set to sell it to CNN Sporting Risk. But with just hours until the EFL deadline, the deal collapsed. Just last season, Berry were promoted to League One. Now they become the first FA Cup winning team to be expelled from the Football League. 
Bury FC is just 15 miles from Manchester United and Manchester City, two of the richest football clubs in the world. Questions will now be asked about whether they could have done more to save Bury FC and whether that is their responsibility. Down the road in Bolton, the outlook is also bleak. They have been given 14 days to avoid the same fate. Shakespeare would have said there's something rotten in football. And I think there is something rotten in football. Uh, football is our national game. It belongs to us, the people, not to a few individuals who want to make a few bob out of it. At Bury, all hope was lost. Fans left to contemplate life without their beloved club. Martha Kellner, Sky News, Bury. At the other end of the game, though, something extraordinary happened during the 2018-19 Premier League season. Liverpool and Manchester City went toe-to-toe for the title, and they both just kept on winning. In another remarkable end to a season, though, Manchester City nicked the title by a point on the last day with 98. Liverpool, who lost only one league match all season, finished second on 97. Their consolation, of course, came in the Champions League. After comfortably beating Bayern Munich and Porto, they came up against Barcelona in the semi-finals and were rolled over by three goals to nil in the first leg at the Camp Nou. In the return match, however, Liverpool had arguably their finest Anfield European night of all, overturning Barcelona's insurmountable-looking lead and winning the tie with one of the cheekiest goals that the tournament has ever seen. He's been here since he was six, and he spotted that out! What a corner! It was the second All-English final against Tottenham Hotspur. Spurs had looked dead and buried halfway through the group stages before bouncing back and the knockouts took them past Borussia Dortmund, Manchester City and Ajax, the latter two of which were ties that will likely go down as amongst the greatest European nights in that club's history. On the night, though, Liverpool was simply too powerful for Spurs. They won a penalty kick to take the lead inside a minute, a handball by Musa Sissoko. It finished 2-0 to Liverpool, but there was never much doubt from the moment that penalty was converted. Jurgen Klopp's team started the 2019-20 season under a head of steam, setting records that will probably only be seen for their brilliance with the perspective that history gives. They dropped two points at Old Trafford against Manchester United in October, but otherwise they became a relentless winning machine, sweeping everything before them, although this incredible winning run did finally come to an end at the very end of February 2020, with a 2-1 defeat at Watford. On the 11th of March 2020, Liverpool played Atletico Madrid in the Champions League. They'd lost the first leg 1-0 in Spain, and Atletico won a thrilling second leg by three goals to two to knock the holders out of the Champions League in front of a crowd of more than 52,000 people at Anfield. On the same night at the Parc des Princes in Paris, however, Paris Saint-Germain beat Borussia Dortmund in an empty stadium. 
A novel virus, which was believed to have originated in the Wuhan province of China, had spread to Europe, and France was going into lockdown. Questions were raised over whether the Liverpool match should have been played, especially considering that Madrid was at that time already considered one of Europe's hotspots for this virus. Football had to close down. It had no choice. And at the time of recording this, it remained shut down though for how much longer this will be the case remains unknown at present. Everyone wants it to return. The clubs certainly do. The Premier League is terrified of breaching those very valuable television contracts. The bill for doing so would top £1 billion. Smaller clubs are dependent on matchday revenue, which has suddenly completely run dry. There are few clubs with substantial cash reserves. When the game does come back, It will be behind closed doors to start, but other than that, we don't know what else would have changed by the time it does. Those hoping for anyone to act in the greater interest of the game as a whole have been left disappointed. Everybody is grabbing. Everybody is grasping for themselves. The idea of a greater good for professional football already feels like an almost quaint degree of optimism. Perhaps, though, it was ever thus. As soon as people started turning up to watch matches and clubs realised that they could charge them for the privilege of doing so, football has evolved away from being a sport towards becoming a business. From the arrival of professionalism in the middle of the 1880s, football's evolution has always been about this. However, as long as there are patches of grass, people who want to play it and people who want to watch it though, football will survive in one form or another. Each other and grow.